Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, here's what's coming up on this edition. Boyd Bailey of Wisdom Hunters and Ministry Ventures offering a 90-day devotional centered around walking with Jesus that can provide some inspiration during the Advent season. Plus, Ed Tandy McGlasson of Blessing of the Father Ministries offering some insight on navigating difficult family relationships during the holidays. Then it's Tim Witter of the Parents Television Council discussing recent developments in the entertainment industry centered around inappropriate behavior. He makes a connection with the offensive content that is all too common that's being generated from that industry. And on this edition of The Intersection, a report on the plight of Iraqi Christians from Juliana Tamarazi of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council, who highlights how Christians in that region have been driven from their homes, many facing devastating circumstances. Some even want to return to their homes. That update is ahead. Then it's Jeremy Dice of First Liberty, sharing the story of a high school senior who was not allowed to include a prayer in her graduation remarks. The school district has now rewritten its policy to allow students to speak freely on religion in that setting. Finally, Nathaniel Jeanson from Answers in Genesis, a biologist who provides a look at the mistaken principles of Charles Darwin and how discoveries in the field of genetics tell a story about origins consistent with the scriptures. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Boyd Bailey is the founder of Wisdom Hunters and co-founder of Ministry Ventures. He's released a new devotional book entitled Two Minutes in the Bible with Jesus, a 90-day devotional. It's his fifth book in the Two Minutes in the Bible series and can be applicable as Christians focus on Jesus during the Christmas season. Here now is Boyd Bailey. I had been writing on the parables a couple of years ago. There's about 42 throughout the um, Gospels. You know, the parables can be head-scratchers. Even the disciples themselves were like, Jesus, are you writing this for us? Are you writing this for someone else? You know, exactly who are you writing this for? And so as I got into the parables, I was really struck by uh, how Jesus related to people. And so I extended my study beyond the 42 parables, uh, beyond to 90 of these devotionals. And one, one idea that, that really resonated with me was the, the religious people who really didn't see themselves as being prideful or sinful uh, and thought they were spiritual, Jesus was the hardest on. And then the people that kind of recognized their sin and didn't really see themselves as being spiritual, Jesus had the most mercy and compassion on. And so it, it reminded me that I need to be careful not to get those backwards. And I need to have that same attitude of grace and humility and love toward those that don't know any better because they're outside of the grace of God. But yet those that, that are within the faith and within the church and claim to be Christians, there's a high standard that we need to hold each other to and hold each other accountable, obviously all in love, but not getting those backwards and making sure we're loving people the way Jesus loves people. And so I just loved seeing how he related to these people. And so a lot of these devotionals kind of take those ideas in a practical application on how we can relate to and love people well and how we can receive God's grace and love from others. I know for me and for maybe a lot of us, sometimes we feel like we're not worthy or that we've done things that how could we be forgiven? And maybe there's shame or guilt. And I think the beauty of how Jesus approached people was, you know, he was a man tempted like us, though without sin. And so he knows our struggles. He knows our our tendency to disappoint because we are imperfect people with a perfect Savior living through us. 
And so I, I like it that when Jesus approached people that were caught in sin or that were struggling with sin, uh, he would show compassion, but at the same time, he would say, go and sin no more. So the woman caught in adultery, um, or the woman at the well, where he said, go and tell your friends what great things God has done for you. And, he, and, he, and like you said, he really made the truth clear that you worship God in spirit and in truth. And so I, I like it that, as you said, he had that good balance between grace and truth, but you always felt like you were accepted and you were loved, and, and it was infectious. And I think that's why the early church thrived so much is because they were they knew that they were followers of Christ by their love and by their hospitality, but yet they had this strong moral code of we're not going to be sucked into what the world says is right and wrong, and we're going to live pure and holy lives through the power of the Holy Spirit because we believe this is what Jesus has called us to. Boyd Bailey is joining us today here on the Meeting House on Faith Radio, and he is with the ministry called Wisdom Hunters. That is a ministry that he founded. He's also written the two minutes in the Bible with Jesus. It's a 90-day devotional book. And, of course, Boyd, this time of year, we talk a lot about gifts and presents, if you will. In fact, I know one of the themes in this particular devotional guide is living in the present is a present. Well, pause for just a moment. Let that sink in. Nice play on words there. Living in the present <laughs> is a present. So what does that mean? I know I'm guilty at times when we have uh, people over to our house or we're at my grandmother's or my mother's or whomever over the holidays. If I'm not careful, I can put on my Martha mode or my Martha hat where I'm feeling like, oh, I've got to get all the dishes clean or I've got to uh, make sure everything's organized and just right. And I think what God's been convicting me of is, boy, people people are okay with dishes being in the sink. Um, they really want you to sit in the living room and be present and to listen and to really empathize and understand you know, where a family member is or where a friend is and not not be quick to judge, but be quick to listen and slow to judge and, and not be so caught up in all the activity. And I think that's the temptation and the danger around Christmas is, we can get so busy trying to make things perfect, whether it's our house or our clothes or our relationships or whatever it is. And the Lord's saying, boy, you know, hit the pause button. Don't try to make everything perfect. Be present with those that I put in your life and be a good example to them of the peace of my peace kind of controlling your heart and, and the compassion that I want to live through you where you're a great listener and you're really understanding where people live. And so I've tried to do that. I've asked my wife, Rita, to, to remind me that, you know, we're here for the people. We're not here for the tasks. That was Boyd Bailey here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website wisdomhunters.com. The founder of Blessing of the Father Ministries, former NFL player Ed Tandy McGlasson, joined me recently to discuss his six-video series with a workbook entitled The Blessing of the Father for Families, in our conversation, he also offered some insight and suggestions for extending forgiveness toward family members during the holidays. Here now is Ed Tandy McGlasson. Most people, when they think about forgiveness, they think that forgiveness is about just out of sight, out of mind. I'm just going to forgive them and, and let them go. And, and so, but because you, the way people learn to forgive, they're actually waiting for the person who hurt them to make what they did wrong to them right. And so when you do that, you put your healing in your own life in the hands of the person that hurt you. 
But what if you could make forgiveness predictable? What, what if you could even predict this next holiday season on what, how you would approach these family members that have hurt you or, or friends or people from different political parties? And it's this idea that, that, uh, that I learned in Scripture that, that really set me free, and it's this idea called pre-forgiveness. When God forgives us, the Bible says, it doesn't say that God just forgives us because he's just this merciful, you know, God all the time. And he is merciful, but he's also just. Well, the Bible says that when Jesus came and died on the cross for us, that the Father took every sin and offense that anybody would experience and anything that we would do to one another or do against him and he put it on his son in one moment on the cross. And Jesus died and, and paid the penalty for every one of those offenses. Now you think about that for a moment. And so when God then forgives me and you, and we come to him and say, God, would you forgive me for this? As the Holy Spirit kind of grabs our heart, we feel guilty about something. We go to God and say, God, would you forgive me for this? He's not just forgiving us because he's merciful. He's forgiving us through his justice because what, we, what Christ, Christ had already died for what we were asking forgiveness for um, two, over 2,000 years ago. So at the moment that I ask it, the forgiveness that the Father already has in his heart because of what his son did, now it's extended to me, and I am forgiven every time. But what if you did that during the holidays? What if you took the, 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 the offenses that that person and people around you, because you can tell bitterness, because when they walk in the room, you look at them and go, oh, there he is. And we've learned a lot about creating safe boundaries and putting borders around us so we don't get hurt again. And there's wisdom for that, but there's, to do that without forgiving only makes you a prisoner waiting for that other person to change before you can be healed. But what if, what if you, you understood that every offense that anyone has ever done against you has already been pre-forgiven by God? And when you understand that and you forgive people that have hurt you, not because you need to be this merciful person. I had a woman tell me the other day, I'm just not very merciful. I'm not in the mood to forgive. And I go, well, that's okay. God doesn't ask you to be in the mood. <laughs> God, God, God wants you to know that what your husband did against you, Jesus took on the cross. And so would you be willing to take what Jesus paid for? and extend it towards your man who hurt you by forgiving him. And see, one of the fastest ways for a family to change, because I know there's some families listening right now, and you, you get together in, you know, I was uh, in a food store uh, a couple of holidays ago, and this couple pulled up behind me in their cart. And I, my cart was filled with different food for a party, for a big family party. And, and I looked back, and in their cart were a couple of gallons of vodka and drink mix. And there was two brothers and a sister. And so I looked at their cart, I looked at mine, and I, you know, I, I looked back and I just said, thirsty? <laughs> 
And the gal looks at me and she goes, "Yeah, we're having a family thing today, and and the only way we can get together is if we drink this." How sad. That's just bitterness, you know. This 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 place that we can get. And matter of fact, we have the only answer to all this vitriol that's out there. This political posturing and doggy dog eye for an eye kind of culture and that is the that the most and it's the whole reason of christmas isn't it ed tandy mcglasson here on the intersection find out more at blessingofthefather.com the intersection podcast continues now with tim witter president of the parents television council who discussed with me recent developments from the entertainment industry an industry that has promoted objectionable behavior by its offensive ideas and programming. Here now from that conversation is Tim Witter. I think parents understand there's an awful lot of graphic stuff on television and in other forms of media that they want to protect their children from. Um, you, you have people in Hollywood who, you know, you scratch your head and you wonder what kind of moral compass do they have or do they even have one uh, when they are producing so much explicit stuff and then not just airing it when children are watching, but they're actually marketing it to children. Um, we're seeing fantasy fairy tale stories, things like the reimagination of Wizard of Oz, NBC's version uh, has, has Dorothy and the Tin Man engaging in sexual conduct. You have ABC's reimagination of Alice in Wonderland. I mean, what's more child-friendly than Alice in Wonderland? Well, Alice shoots and, and murders Rumpelstiltskin, and it's very—it's in cold blood, and it's very grotesque. I mean, these are these are network uh, programmers and Hollywood creative community members now gone wild. And you know what you said about the the behavior of some uh, you know media titans, really, uh, actually being now caught uh, doing things that have been alleged for a long time. I say thank God that this is coming to to light. I think it's important that this is coming out. Um, I'm, you know, obviously concerned for everyone who works at the, those companies where I used to work, uh, who has to face that kind of, of sexual conduct pressure from a superior. It's grotesque. Um, what's ironic is in amongst all this outrage from Hollywood, whether it's outrage against this behavior, whether it's outrage at gun violence, which they see as, as you know, solely the gun, a gun ownership issue, they are actually producing and profiting every single night from from content that asks us to laugh at this very content, this very behavior. It, it asks us to laugh at jokes about sexual assault. I mean, there are actually punchlines to jokes about sexual assault. Can you imagine uh, how, how can how can we expect our children to uh, to understand the, the horror of sexual assault? If on television, the, the programming says this is something that we should laugh at. So it's really an upside down world right now. And that's why the Parents Television Council is here to help parents try to navigate the very choppy uh, media waters for their children. We're talking about uh, some of these developments with respect to high profile people in the entertainment industry, as well as those in the political realm and uh, some of the behaviors that have been alleged and admitted and uh, and actually exposed and you know you you would think that when you see people that are taken to task for these sorts of inappropriate behavior you would hope 
that might be a signal that the entertainment industry might need to change its approach to some of these issues. But I'm not sure, Tim, that I can connect the dots in that matter. What do you think? (laughs) They haven't been able to connect the dots, that's for sure. Um, you, you, what you said is exactly right. You would think, you would think that this is an, a golden opportunity for Hollywood to, uh, to do something that's actually positive. They talk about all, you know, all these, uh, you know, the conduct that they say is, is awful. And yet they are, they are basically, you know, causing it to continue to perpetuate that, that content in real life because of the messages they're sending. Uh, you know, as a parent, and I, I can't remember if you have kids, Bob, but you know, I, have, I, have, I have a daughter. Can, can, you, can you imagine uh, in the news cycle today a more abhorrent uh, a news story that seems to come up once or twice a week now where you have a school teacher who has been uh, accused or, or, or exposed for having sexual relations with a student, with a high school student or younger. And, and that just makes my skin crawl. That is one of the most vile things I can imagine. And yet... Just last Tuesday night on a TV show on primetime broadcast TV marketed to children, a so-called family comedy called The Mick. The entire episode was about the high school kid, girl, girl who wanted to sleep with her school teacher. The entire episode. And it was all in the form of comedy and it was something to be laughed at. And, and you know, as abhorrent as that is, it was sponsored by Toys R Us. So, so you know, you have you have producers who are creating it, you have networks that are airing it, and you have sponsors that are underwriting it. And from the, the Parents Television Council's point of view, um, we can do nothing, or we can actually try to take action against each of those three targets to say, thus far and no farther. You cannot you cannot be promoting that kind of uh, conduct as something that's funny or appropriate for our children. Tim Witter here on the intersection. Learn more about the Parents Television Council through the website Parents TV. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Find out more by going to the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. Also through that homepage, you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is the front room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the meeting house. The other is the three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the meeting house Facebook page. Video content is accessible also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Juliana Tamarazi serves as founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council. She's also a fellow of the Philos Project. In a recent conversation with me, she shared some background on the decline in the number of Christians in Iraq and provided an update on the plight of Iraqi Christians. From that conversation, here now is Juliana Tamarazi. So let's take Mosul, for example. Mosul, um, a lot of Christians, thousands and thousands of Christians used to live in Mosul, next door to Muslims. And when the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria came in, they uh, they marked Christian homes, as you know, with the Arabic letter N, that represents those who uh, follow Jesus of Nazareth as Nazarenes. And who gave these people up? It was their Muslim neighbors that gave them up. So there are about, out of thousands of people there or families, there are about only 60 families that have returned to Mosul as of right now, trying to see if they can rebuild their lives in fear. Um, 
because they don't know when the next fall is going to happen. So although, and it's important to mention, when ISIS came into Syria, they only came with a 1,000 people. There were over 20,000 ISIS supporters who were former um, Saddam Hussein supporters. There were former generals. There were bosses that wanted to take revenge, really, against the Shiites in Baghdad. And they joined ISIS. So those people still live in Mosul. And the Islamic State, their ideology continues to live inside the hearts and minds of these Muslims, radical Muslims. ISIS is defeated, yes, but that does not mean uh, they are going to be safe. In the Nineveh Plain, which is um, heavily, which was heavily Christian populated, um, those areas have been liberated completely. And the threat of Muslims is lowered drastically in the Nineveh Plain, because there were not too many Muslims really living uh, in those areas, for example, in a town called Karakosh or Baghdadi. Um, the Kurds have been able to liberate some areas because of the assistance from the U.S. The Christian militia um, called the Nineveh Plain Protection Unit was able to liberate most of the Nineveh Plain because of uh, the Iraqi special forces out of Baghdad. Um, the only way we as Assyrians, Chaldeans, and Syriacs can be protected and thrive and survive in those areas is to have for us a province of our own on the outskirts of Mosul, which is this Nineveh Plain area I mentioned. And for our own boys and girls, for our own men and women to be able to be equipped and trained to defend our communities, our towns, our families, our homes, ourselves. The Kurds betrayed us. The Arabs out of Baghdad betrayed us. And who can protect me? Who can protect my home better than myself? No one. We have this formalized, officially recognized by Baghdad unit, Nineveh Plain Protection Unit. But we need more help. We need more force um, support from the United States. We advocated heavily on the Hill uh, for this administration not to give money to the UN, not to give money directly to Baghdad um, and Erbil in form of aid, because it doesn't get to the people. Um, so, however, I say that, I have to tell you, we have to go through bureaucracy. Proposals have to be submitted to the US aid. Uh, and they have to vet the organizations that they want to help on the ground in Iraq. So that is a long process. That is going to take months, if not years, to really, really translate the money into services on the ground. That's why mm. the form of support that comes from the people, um, good-hearted Christian Americans here, is extremely important because as um, Washington, D.C. goes through the vetting process, that is where and, – and winter doesn't wait – for the U.S. to send aid. Uh, the hunger, the empty stomachs don't, cannot wait. And that's why we step in and other organizations that are great step in to help the people on the ground mm. more on an immediate basis. But this administration has been extremely helpful. I'm forever grateful as, uh, as they have really, uh, Vice President Pence is a fantastic Christian and I'm grateful for his support. We are in the entire region. We helped last year, we helped 110,000 Christians in the region. The year prior, 155,000 people. We are very much in Turkey, in Jordan, in Lebanon, um, and we were in Syria in 2015 when they were attacked by ISIS. 
we work through trusted partners um, on the ground there. We receive proposals and we fulfill these proposals based on the funding that we have. So, for example, in Turkey, there are 45,000 Christians in Turkey that have to hide their Christianity in order for them to be fed by charitable Islamic organizations or by local mosques. Juliana Tamarazi here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website victimsofisis.com. The Intersection continues now with Jeremy Dice, Deputy General Counsel of First Liberty Institute. He discussed a favorable outcome of a case involving a high school senior in Pennsylvania who was not allowed to include a prayer in her graduation speech. The district ended up changing its policy. From a recent conversation, this is Jeremy Dice. Graduation is a memorable time for everyone, I suppose, and it's more memorable for some than others, and especially for Mariah, because she was asked to provide the closing remarks at her graduation ceremony. She was going to be responsible for, for creating those remarks and having the control over what was said in them, uh, but had to submit them to the, the district before, um, before she went on stage. And she got a message real soon before graduation saying that her, uh, her, her comments were too religious and they, they needed to be changed. Uh, that really disappointed her because this is her only high school graduation, and she had been uh, desirous to be able to tell her, her colleagues, her classmates, one final best wish and to be able to reference her faith as she did so. Uh, so she gave a, a really modified version of what she had planned to give and then called us and said, was that right? Was that illegal? Or, or what, what was the deal? And we said, no, no, what you did, what you had planned originally was perfectly fine. You could have referenced that because there, there's a clear difference. And, and here's the important point for all those students that are listening to their parents. Uh, when, when a student controls the, the remarks, when they're the one responsible for creating the content and, and, and responsible for that message, that's what we call private speech. If it's something that is representative of the state, of the school itself, if you're a, an ambassador of the school, that's state speech, and there's a whole different uh, uh, standard that applies. But in this case, this was a speech that she created, that she outlined, and that she had ready to go uh, and, and it was private speech protected fully by the First Amendment. So for the school district to say it was too religious or to disagree with the viewpoint that was going to be expressed in that uh, was itself unlawful. So we sent a letter to the school district on behalf of Mariah, said, look, this was unlawful. What you did was wrong. Here's what the law actually says. Why don't, you, why don't we sit down and have a meeting and talk about it? And some time went by, and the school district didn't really respond to that. They, they took kind of a, a hard position initially, uh, but some community pressure arose after the, afterwards, and, and the local community there really became a little bit upset with the school district. And we got a call a couple months later from the school district attorney saying, hey, look, we'd really like to sit down with you and the superintendent and the school board to talk about this a little bit more. Uh, and so we went up to Pennsylvania again, sat down with Mariah, the district, and uh, the superintendent, talked a little bit longer, found them to be very uh, affable people, uh, approachable and willing to listen, explain what the law actually was. And lo and behold, a couple weeks later, uh, they've now changed their policy entirely, about a 180-degree turn from what they had before, and promised to protect private student religious speech in the future so that this kind of thing won't happen again. This is exactly what Mariah was after. And, and the cherry on top of this whole story is that just the other day, Mariah received a letter from the school superintendent apologizing for the confusion that, had, that this whole situation had caused for Mariah and kind of the pall that had had rested over top of her graduation ceremony. Look, I, I think this was the right thing for the school district to do. They've recognized the problem. They've changed their policy. They've apologized. And there's even talk now of, uh, of the community there reinstituting the baccalaureate service for religious students 
into the future. So I, I, this is an incredible wow. story of what happens <laughs> when one young lady stands up for her religious liberty. For the students, I want them to hear very care, carefully and clearly. You don't shed your constitutional rights when you walk through the schoolhouse gates. You retain them. And that's been the unmistakable holding of the Supreme Court for going on a century now. Uh, and it's very clear that you have the control, when you have the control over your remarks, whether that's at graduation, a pep rally, or perhaps just in a classroom assignment, a speech you've got to give to your classmates, you can reference your faith. And the Department of Education has issued guidelines on this very point. So it's very, very clear that you retain those rights and, and you don't lose them. So continue to maintain your, your religion and reference it in your school assignments and speeches, etc. Parents, you need to understand that we've got resources available to you. Go to firstliberty.org and download the Know Your Rights Toolkit so that you know what your rights are for your students. Uh, and teachers, you can look at the same document. It helps you understand what your rights are in the classroom and on the, on the school campus. But school administrators need to remember that these students are citizens as well, uh, and, and they don't lose their constitutional rights just because they've walked through your schoolhouse gates. Uh, and and the, the better side of, of uh, caution here, the better side of valor, is not to censor speech with which you disagree, but to allow speech to happen and if absolutely necessary, you are welcome to disclaim the fact that those comments don't reflect the district's opinions on things. That's fine. Uh, but the solution to speech with which you disagree is not to squelch the speaker, as one court has said. It is to meet it with more and better speech. Jeremy Dice here on The Intersection. The First Liberty website is firstliberty.org. Spell out the word first. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Nathaniel Jeanson. He serves as a research biologist, author, and speaker for Answers in Genesis. He discussed his work in biology and how it relates to origins consistent with the biblical account of creation. He also shared concepts he puts forward in the book, Replacing Darwin, The New Origin of Species. From that conversation, this is Nathaniel Jeanson. I'll say, okay, whoever's arguing against me, you believe in evolution. Sure, yes. Okay, and, and you do so because the vast majority of scientists do. Yes, okay, interesting, fine. I said, well, do you know why the vast majority of scientists hold evolution, and do you know the history of this term? Uh, this concept. And my guess is they probably won't, because I, I didn't even know it myself until recently. <laughs> you look at Darwin's work, the first edition of his book on the origin of species, published 1859, the closing chapter deals with something that I didn't expect to see. Darwin wrote this sentence. He said, why, it may be asked, have all the most eminent living naturalists and geologists rejected this view, meaning Darwin's view, of the mutability or the change in species? In other words, when Darwin wrote his book, he wasn't a hero who answered this long-standing question, this, solved this long-standing mystery, and people cheered him on as, as, as a guy who'd, who unlocked the secret. He challenged the settled science, the consensus of his day, so much so, and, and he knew it. I mean, why else would he put this sentence in this book saying, everyone disagrees with me, and, and people are going to ask me, why, Darwin, do, do you challenge this view? He gave four responses. And what's interesting is, in the 1869 edition, 10 years later, he changed that sentence. He updated that sentence to say, why until recently did all these people disagree with me? So the history of science shows that revolutions in biology are inevitable and happen regularly. People want to talk about, well, you're challenging the scientific consensus. I would say, yes, just like Darwin did. And if he hadn't, we wouldn't be in the state of mind that we are today. We wouldn't have 97% 
agreeing with evolution if Darwin had not effected a scientific revolution in his day. And so I say, why not just put another dot on this trajectory, another point on this timeline and say, let's have another revolution. Hmm. I would say there's one gigantic difference between this view of the origin of species I just outlined and what evolutionists are saying. And it, it really comes down to modern genetics. So one of the first points I make in my book is that the, the question of the origin of species is really ultimately a genetic question. Species are defined by their, their features, elephants by their trunks, giraffes by their long necks. But these traits, these features, are defined by inheritance. And I'm making a logical chain here. And inheritance is defined by DNA. And you, Darwin could not have completed that sentence in 1859. We didn't mm-hmm. know that DNA was the substance yeah. of heredity yeah. until 100 years later. So... Genetics is the most important field of science, and the biggest genetic question that needs to be answered is where do the differences between me and you, between me and a chimpanzee, between chimpanzees and giraffes and so forth, all the other species, where do these differences come from? Evolutionists have said for many years, this is the result of genetic mistakes. Ultimately, everything we see on this planet is the result of a genetic accident. We're all a bunch of genetic accidents, basically. Well, I have four lines of evidence in the book. I, I first give the history of genetics to bring just any lay reader up to speed. I, did, I didn't write this book for my my technical peers so that only 0.2% of the planet could read it. I wanted it to be accessible. <laughs> yeah. But I give about four lines of evidence in the book that say, actually, the vast majority of DNA differences that we see were created in these initial kinds in Genesis chapter 1. So the principle is all of us are the product of both of our parents. Mom gives us DNA. Dad gives us DNA. Well, where did those first ancestors. Where did Adam and Eve get their DNA from? Well, God created them from the dust, Eve from Adam's side, from his rib. But I was, I, what I show in the book is that it looks like God created Adam and Eve with the appearance of having parents. In other words, within Adam's own DNA, he had two different versions, just like I have two different versions because I have two different parents. And I would say, I think we have four lines of evidence pointing to all of the creatures having this same state. And if that's true, if we're not all the product of accidents, but there were millions of DNA differences hardwired into these ancestors from the start. That dramatically changes the time scale of speciation, the mechanism of speciation. That rewrites how we understand the history of natural life on this planet. So that, that to me, is the biggest bombshell discovery and the the biggest player in this debate. For for anyone who's on the street, the first thing I tell them is, did you know that Darwin knew 1% of what we know today? And even evolutionists will admit this. They'll say, well, Darwin knew the most important 1% of the information that we know today. But I'll say, look, on any other historical question, would you accept a 150-year-old answer if, if any 1% of what we know today? Probably not. You'd go back and revisit it. Well, I'll say, well, it's now time to revisit it and revisit the most important field of science, genetics. And we have multiple independent lines of evidence confirming what the scriptures say and dramatically rewriting how we understand the origin of species. Nathaniel Jeanson here on The Intersection. Learn more about the ministry at AnswersInGenesis.org. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the media center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also subscribe to The Intersection through that site and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and get connected to the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also access video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You can also get to the homepage through faithradio.org. 
you can scroll over the programming section and find a link to the meeting house. You can also download the Faith Radio app for iPhone, iPad, Android, Amazon, and Microsoft devices. And you can get connected to content from the Meeting House program and the Intersection podcast. Again, the Meeting House website is meetinghouseonline.info. The Faith Radio website is faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.